Right now on Matter of Fact, more people are receiving a vaccine just as new variants are spreading nationwide. Can the country avoid another surge? And two mass shootings one week apart. We have to act. Will the president impose tougher gun laws without help from Congress? There are many things President Biden can do through executive action. Plus, how, 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 how to erect respect in a country of men. She's a poet, playwright, and activist. How Sonia Sanchez has influenced a new generation of writers. Poetry makes us understand that there is a tomorrow walking towards us. Then, packing on the pandemic pounds and a short history of lengthy filibusters. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. America is at a familiar crossroad, a mass shooting, a call for gun control. Then nothing happens. A shooter killed 10 people in Boulder, Colorado, just days after another shooter killed eight people in Atlanta. Johns Hopkins calls America's gun violence a health problem, saying the U.S. has 100 deaths, 200 injuries from guns daily. That's from independent tracking. The federal government doesn't have a centralized system or a database to track firearm incidents and mass shootings nationwide. After the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre, Shannon Watts founded Moms Demand Action, a group focused on passing stronger gun laws. Give us some context for where we are in America when it comes to these mass shootings and even how we define a mass shooting. Sadly, America is the only high-income country where resuming normal life means resuming these public shootings that we're seeing playing out right now. It is important to remember that mass shootings are the tip of the iceberg of gun violence in this country. It's about 1% of the gun violence, but it gets so much attention because it's so many people in one place at the same time. But if you divide 100 by four, which is the FBI definition of a mass shooting, four people not including the shooter, there are about 20 every single day in this country. Do you see an area of consensus where actually, regardless of where your politics are, there is some common ground where you could begin to bring people together? Let's be clear. The only place where gun safety is not a bipartisan issue with overwhelming support is the U.S. Senate. When you look at polling in America, about 93% of Americans 89% of gun owners, 87% of Republicans support laws like a background check on every gun sale. I'm not sure there's any other issue in this country that has that kind of consensus around it. But because we have a gun lobby that for so many years amassed unfettered wealth and power uh, and, and, and frankly became a political powerhouse, you know, we have still some senators who are beholden to them. And that's what we've done is sort of to, to remove uh, the stranglehold the gun lobby has had on some lawmakers finger by finger over the last decade. And that is happening. You know, there are conversations ongoing uh, with members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. And, and I think they're going very well. We have some Republicans who are retiring um, and have nothing to lose to, to vote their conscience and to do the right thing on this issue. So I'm feeling very good about our chances. It's so important to remember that this is not a polarizing issue among Americans, only in the U.S. Senate. I covered the Sandy Hook school shooting. And I remember thinking at the time, like, if this event, is if, if this has horrific tragedy does not spur 
people to action, then, then nothing ever will. You're right in the sense that the cathartic moment that we were waiting for in Congress never happened. But something did happen. That was the creation of organizations like Moms Demand Action. Along with Students Demand Action, we have millions of supporters and hundreds of thousands of volunteers like me who wake up and do this work every single day in state houses and in boardrooms. And really, it, it has been incredibly effective. You know, we have passed background checks in 22 states. We've passed red flag laws in 19 states. We've disarmed domestic abusers in 29 states. And hundreds of companies have changed their corporate policies around this issue because of the pressure we've put on them. That's how issues work in this country, social issues. You have to build momentum on the ground and then point the right president and the right, right Congress in the right direction. So then are you optimistic that you'll see change not in 50 years, but in the next several years? I think we're talking days and weeks. There is not a corner of- Really? I do. There, there is not a corner of the Biden administration that can't be doing something right now to address gun violence in this country. That includes getting the Senate to vote on the legislation that has passed the House, like background checks. Um, but it also includes executive action. You know, there are many things President Biden can do through executive action. He can strengthen the background check system. He can regulate the market for ghost guns. He can make sure there is funding for community violence interruption programs. Um, so there is a lot that can be done. And uh, based on the conversations we're having with the White House and, and also with members of Congress, I'm confident we'll get that done. Shannon Watts, always nice to see you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Next on Matter of Fact, what can history tell us about the future of pandemics? We are still uncovering how terrible the, the plague in 1918 was. Welcome back, everybody. Is the U.S. facing another COVID-19 surge, even as vaccinations ramp up? Dr. Anthony Fauci says a surge in cases in Europe could foreshadow what's to come in the U.S., saying caution is still the key. Other health officials say it's too early to tell. From the outset of the pandemic, historians urged us to take the long view, reminding us of another time and another pandemic in which warnings that were ignored led to a wave of death. Our special contributor, Joey Chen, has those lessons from history. The year was 1918. The world was at war. A silent threat loomed at home, and yet the band played on. America entered the Great War just a year earlier with patriotism at a fever pitch. Everyone was supposed to be super patriotic. Everybody was supposed to contribute to the cause. That's right. We have to remember that America in 1917 and 1918 was really a nation going to war. And they were going to war with a very profound propaganda campaign. Kenneth C. Davis wrote the Don't Know Much About series, although he actually knows quite a lot about history. His latest book is More Deadly Than War, about the 1918 flu and its connections to combat. What was America like in 1918? The United States had stayed out of that fight for three years, but in April 1917 decided to declare war on Germany. We had almost no army at the time, very small Navy, and so everything had to be started from scratch. The buildup took about a year, and America's young soldiers were finally ready at the very moment, spring of 1918, 
when another enemy arrived, the flu. This flu struck suddenly. It struck uh, without warning, and it was like nothing that anyone had ever seen before. It was killing healthy young farm boys at a remarkable rate. They were turning blue, literally dying within hours. But America was focused on getting the doughboys to Europe with predictable consequences. Those troop transports were disease carriers. They were like hotbeds of infection, and someone has called them floating coffins. The flu had already gone global, but neutral Spain got the blame. It was not at war. So that meant the Spanish newspapers were not being censored to the degree that papers in some of the other combatant nations were. So the first real published report in Europe of an epidemic comes out of Madrid, and almost instantly it becomes known very widely as the Spanish flu. It certainly did not start there. The flu death slowed by summer, but then a kind of patriotic fever reignited the pandemic. And this is where it killed. This became a holy crusade, and part of that crusade was to sell war bonds, known as liberty loans. Philadelphia leaders planned a huge liberty loan parade. Despite doctors urging a halt, the health commissioner let the march go on. 200,000 people crowded the streets of Philadelphia. Within two days of that parade, every hospital bed in Philadelphia was filled. It was an extraordinary outburst of death, an outbreak of death. Other cities were better at social distancing, at least for a time. But in just one year, the flu claimed some 675,000 American lives, and somewhere between 50 and 100 million worldwide. We are still uncovering evidence of how far and uh, terrible the, the plague in 1918 was. Davis is quick to say the 1918 flu isn't exactly like COVID-19. Still, he sees warning signs. This did not go away when flu season was over in the springtime and summertime. It came back in September more virulent more violent, more lethal than it was in the first round. The federal government took a very hands-off attitude about the pandemic. They also were not honest, and many local officials were not honest. Time and time again, you saw local officials say, it's just the flu. And it wasn't just the flu. It was something much, much worse. We have to rely, be able to rely on honest, factual, government information based on data and science, not gut instincts, not what somebody thinks. Posing the question by ignoring science, is history destined to write another chapter of tragedy? Coming up, how Sonia Sanchez uses poetry to find peace during troubled times. We had to scrape the veneer that was on America. And as we scraped, we got to some real blood. We began to spit out words that the country paid attention to. Welcome back, everybody. During times of tragedy, turbulence, and turmoil, finding the right words to describe those moments can be a challenge. Poetry, 
can intimately speak to the masses during trying times. When she recited The Hill We Climb back in January, Amanda Gorman became the youngest poet to read at a presidential inauguration. But she was influenced by a long tradition of black women writers who have focused on issues of feminism, identity, and oppression, including Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde. Another of Gorman's major influences is Sonia Sanchez. The poet and activist is 86 years old, begins every day by writing a haiku. She says it helps her navigate the chaos of the world. Someone asked me, why do you write? And I said simply because I wanted to tell people how I became this woman with razor blades between her teeth. Sonia Sanchez, what a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Can I, I ask you about how artists think about navigating difficult times. You know, every day there's, there, there is a shooting, there is a murder here, there is disruption in this country. And so I understand, you must understand that poetry, you know, are those words that breathe truth into us, are those words that make us take a deep breath and we continue to breathe. We continue to breathe, you know, the ideas that we can live in peace. But why the haiku more than iambic pentameter and a sonnet or whatever else could be at your disposal? I do that, and I do, I've done it. And, and many books, you know, I've done, you know, those kinds of things. But I studied uh, at NYU when I uh, was a graduate of Hunter College. I was going for grad course courses at NYU. And Louise Bogan, a great poet, was teaching a class there. And one of the things that she had us do is to uh, choose a form that we like and begin to work on it and to do a final you know, book of poetry. And I went to the A Street Bookstore and I saw this amazing flowered book up on high and they brought me a stool and I reached up for it and I opened it to a haku and I slid down on the floor and cried because I had found me. In the wake of coronavirus, so many people who work in the arts have lost their livelihoods. Oh, yes. How do you think about that and navigate that? I, I feel like so much is lost when we don't consider the arts as a central part of what we care about. And it's just a, a little add on that, hey, if we end up losing it, mm, so much. You see it always in a time of trouble. The first thing that goes are the artists, you know, and, and the art. But the point is that I say during this particular time, we've had Skype, you know. Uh, you know, we've had these things where people have been able to get on. And I did a graduation speech even, you know, uh, last year uh, here. The point is simply that you cannot discard art. Art is what keeps us alive. The poems keep us holy. The poets make us understand how human we all are, how human we must be. Uh, poetry makes us understand that there is a tomorrow walking towards us. Poetry makes us stop and examine not only the words, but examine the people saying the words also too. And we listen to the truth. In 1973, I, I read some poetry, you know, there at the University of Beijing. But one morning, I called home to say hello to my twins. I said simply, hi, it's mom, it's Monday, and we're going to climb the Great Wall of China today. And I heard my twins say to my Aunt Sarah, Aunt Sarah, mommy thinks it's Monday, but it's really Sunday. Well, I was greeting the day before my children got the day, if you understand that. So on the way I do. there uh, to climb the Great Wall of China, I wrote a haku for them, which said, let me wear the day well, so when it reaches you, you will enjoy it. That evening at the University of Beijing, where I gave a poetry reading, 
One of the, and I ended with that piece, one of the officials stood up and said, ah, Professor Sanchez, if we here in the East learn how to wear our days well, perhaps by the time you get the day in the West, we will have peace. Did you hear that? Oh, I, the sub I love, I love thinking of it that way. And I love the idea of poetry opening doors and explaining concepts and, as you say, bringing peace together uh, for everybody. Sonia Sanchez, what an honor. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, my dear sister. Stay strong and stay healthy. Thank you and likewise. Thank you. Sonia has authored over a dozen books of poetry, plays, short stories, and essays. Her first volume of poetry, Homecoming, was published back in 1969. She's got a new book of collected poems that's due out in April, which is National Poetry Month. Coming up, as Congress debates the future of the filibuster, we look at how its past stopped progress for millions of Americans. Welcome back. There's been lots of talk about the filibuster. So what exactly is it? Well, you've seen it before. Senators making marathon speeches on the floor. By definition, a filibuster is the use of a procedural action in an attempt to delay or prevent a legislative vote. It gives the minority party, currently Republicans, considerable power. To win approval, most legislation requires a simple majority, or 51 votes. But to bring an end to the debate over a piece of legislation, the threshold is higher, 60 votes. Both parties use the filibuster. The Constitution empowers each chamber of Congress to select its own rules, but the filibuster wasn't written into the Constitution. And historians say, while it's been used to kill all kinds of legislation, it became a tool of Southern senators to uphold slavery, then later became a mechanism to block civil rights legislation. A Washington Post analysis looked at 30 measures derailed by the filibuster between 1917 and 1994. Exactly half addressed civil rights, including measures to authorize federal investigation and prosecution of lynching, to ban poll taxes, to prohibit discrimination on the basis of race and housing sales, and rentals as well. Next. Hacking on the pandemic pounds. How much did the numbers go up for Americans on lockdown? Quarantine 15, a small peer-reviewed study suggests during lockdowns, Americans gain more than half a pound every 10 days. That's easily more than 20 pounds over the last year. According to the American Psychological Association, 42% of Americans have gained 29 pounds during the pandemic. The survey found groups most impacted by weight gain were also among those who experienced extra challenges. Parents, obviously, essential workers, of course, with parents reporting an average gain of 36 pounds, essential workers an average gain of 38 pounds. Another 18%, though, say they unintentionally lost an average of 26 pounds due to stress. Hopefully, when we come out the other side of this pandemic and get back to normalcy, everybody will go back to their healthy habits. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. If you want to see our top stories about a mother fighting to change gun laws in America, what history can teach us about the future of pandemics, or see Soledad's one-on-one -on -one with poet Sonia Sanchez, go to matteroffact.tv. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. 
Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.